0: You're listening to Community Radio, KVMR FM Nevada City, KCPC Camino. It's 6 p.m. and it's time for the KVMR Evening News. Hello, I'm Claudio Mendonça. Both the Lassen County town of Susanville and Sacramento are featured on the California Report tonight, the former in a story about how the closure of a state prison there is affecting the local economy. The latter? Well, big changes are being made that could pave the way for little houses at the intersection of Florin and Power Inn Road. Felton Pruitt talks with a representative from Rope Partners, a company that maintains wind turbines. And we close with an essay by Molly Fisk.
1: This is the California Report. I'm Alex Hall in Fresno. Four Marines are believed to be dead after a military aircraft crashed yesterday afternoon in Imperial County just north of the U.S.-Mexico border. Military officials have confirmed that five people were on board at the time, but would not go into detail about the condition of the Marines. According to the LA Times, four of the military members were killed. It's unclear if the fifth person is still missing. The Osprey aircraft was operated by the 3rd Marine Aircraft Wing based in San Diego. It crashed in the community of Glamis near the Salton Sea. There's still no word on what caused the crash. This is the second military aircraft crash in Southern California in the last week. The town of Susanville, about 200 miles northeast of Sacramento in Lassen County, is a former mining and logging area best known for the two state prisons it's home to. The facilities are a driving force for Susanville's economy, even with a third of the town's population being incarcerated. But That could soon change. Governor Newsom has ordered Susanville's California Correctional Center to close by the end of this month. And the city has taken legal action to try to stop it from happening. Reporter Piper French visited Susanville to take a closer look at what the closure could mean for the town's future. She reported the piece for the digital magazine Bolts and spoke with the California Report's Keith Mizuguchi about her findings.
2: How impactful are these two facilities to what Susanville is and sort of what Susanville has become?
3: I think that they have affected the town immensely in a lot of different ways, both financial and social. You know, the presence of the prisons there has meant that more people in the town have become workers at the prison, whether guards or, you know, other sorts of workers. But it also has meant that People from around the state have moved to Susanville to be prison guards there. So it's changed the makeup of the town. It has certainly had a stratifying impact on local wages. The folks who work at the prison often make very decent salaries, especially for that area of the state, where costs of living are much lower than, you know, L.A. or San Francisco. But, you know, when I was there, I noticed that most of the other businesses are sort of like chain restaurants that you might see anywhere in the state or in the country, so like Denny's, Starbucks. And, I'm, you know, as far as I know, the folks there are making minimum wage or thereabouts, so there's, a, there's quite a bit of income stratification as well.
2: That's interesting that you mentioned that a lot of them are chains and chain retailers, I imagine, as well. Once the prisons were built and then eventually remodeled, did that take away kind of the small businesses from the town center?
3: Yeah, I mean, it's really interesting because the town is basically all clustered around one street that goes right through it. And so when you go from one end of the street to the other, as I mentioned in the piece, you can sort of see how the town developed. One end is a historic uptown. It has these really beautiful buildings, but almost all of them are closed. And then as you keep going, it's a lot of motels and gas stations. And, you know, there's a lot of motels in the town because they cater to the families of people incarcerated there. And then at the other end of the town, it's just all chain stores. And from my reporting, most of those came to town around when the second prison was being constructed in the 90s or a little bit afterwards.
2: You mentioned local residents. What's your sense of what they're thinking now with the closure possibly scheduled here? And also, what do they imagine as like their community moving forward?
3: You know, I spoke to people who don't work at the prison, who, you know, really don't think that the prison has had a good impact on their town for some of the reasons I mentioned around businesses closing and income stratification. And I spoke to people who feel very pessimistic about what will happen to Susanville when this prison closes down. And that's very understandable because, you know, to them, the state hasn't really articulated a plan beyond just closing the prison and saying that people can get transfers to other prisons that might not be, you know, anywhere near where they live. But I think there is some optimism too. Quincy McCourt, who's one of the city council members, was someone I spoke to a lot for this piece. And he really cares about his, his city and he really wants it to be a better place than it is right now. And I think that he's taking this closure as an opportunity to think about what Susanville could be.
1: That's the California Report's Keith Mizuguchi speaking with L.A.-based independent journalist Piper French. You can find Piper's story on the future of Susanville at BoltsMag.org.
4: Support for the California Report comes from Stanford HealthCare. Alerting listeners to the critical blood shortage in the area, now is the time to donate blood and make a difference. StanfordBloodCenter.org. Hint. Fruit-infused water in over 25 flavors. No sweeteners, no calories. In stores or delivered from drinkhint.com. Hint. Water with a touch of true fruit flavor. And Eric and Wendy Schmidt through the Schmidt Family Foundation, working together to create a just world where all people have access to renewable energy, clean air and water, and healthy food. On the web at theschmidt.org.
1: By a three to two vote, the Sacramento County Board of Supervisors has approved a tiny home community for unhoused people in South Sacramento. As Cap Radio's Chris Nichols reports, the stakes for the project are high.
5: After a delay in April, the county can now build 100 shed sized homes at Florin and Power Inn Roads. The temporary community will include on site case management, meals, restrooms, and showers all to help transition people to permanent housing. Supervisor Patrick Kennedy represents the area. And if we continue to put this off, we are going to pick up the
0: newspaper this summer and we are going to see people dying on our streets in a civilized country from heat.
5: The tiny homes faced vocal opposition from members of a nearby church. Here is Lon Luong.
1: If you were putting five members unhoused in our community, this would not happen. We would not all be here. But you're putting 125 in a spot across the street from my church where my kids are.
5: Supervisors agreed to impose more stringent security measures to move it forward. But if this first-of-its-kind project in the county fails, they say the public likely won't support future ones. For The California Report, I'm Chris Nichols in Sacramento.
1: And that's the California Report for Thursday, June 9th. We're a production of KQED Public Radio. I'm Alex Hall. Thanks for listening and have a great day.
0: In transportation news, motorists should continue to expect travel delays and one-way traffic controls at multiple locations on State Route 20 here in Nevada County throughout the summer. Major construction work on the State Route 20 Omega Curves project began earlier this year with one-way traffic needed during construction activities. Motorists should expect 20-minute travel delays between 6 a.m. and 6 p.m. on weekdays at both the White Cloud and Lowell Hill work areas. Crews there are installing drainage, performing earthwork, and widening sections of the roadway, and also removing trees and vegetation. The work is part of the $62.5 million Omega Curves project, which aims to reduce collisions on State Route 20 by realigning curves near White Cloud and at Lowell Hill. Three turnouts will be added. You can learn more about the project by visiting omegacurves20.com That's omegacurves20.com Sorry, no more cameras. Here's a statement from the Nevada County Registrar of Voters issued by Gregory J. Diaz, the Nevada County Clerk Recorder, at 315 this afternoon. Quote, I've been informed our live stream is experiencing issues causing the live stream to stop. Because of the public's reliance on our live stream, along with the buggy performance, the live stream for this election cycle will be discontinued at 5 p.m. today. The public always has the opportunity to come into our office as observers during the hours we are processing ballots. The hours are posted on our website, he says. And staying in Nevada County? The Nevada County Agricultural Commissioner, Chris Denies, announced today that he was requesting a USDA disaster declaration through the California Office of Emergency Services for grape growers here in Nevada County. Freezing temperatures in mid-April created an estimated production loss of 55% throughout the county. This amounts to over $1 million in lost revenue for Nevada County grape growers. Denise says that other county crops experienced losses but did not meet the 30% loss threshold required for a disaster declaration. Turning now to regional weather, our entire listening area is expected to experience the first major heat wave of the year this weekend. Tonight, in Grass Valley and Nevada City, mostly clear with a low around 64. On Friday, sunny with a high near 93. On Friday night, Grass Valley and Nevada City will be mostly clear with a low around 65. And in Truckee in the Lake Tahoe area, tonight expect mostly clear skies with a low around 49 degrees. On Friday, sunny with a high near 83. On Friday night, Truckee in the Lake Tahoe area will be mostly clear, with a low around 50. And in Sacramento and the surrounding valley, tonight mostly clear, with a low around 70. Friday will be sunny and hot. Sacramento will see triple-digit temperatures on Friday, with highs near 105. Friday night will be mostly clear, cooling down to around 70 degrees. You're listening to the Evening News on KVMR. They've become familiar enough that many of us don't pay them much mind anymore. But have you ever wondered how wind turbines are maintained? Felton Pruitt talks tonight with Jacqueline Summers of Rope
6: Partners about just that. We're talking with Jacqueline Summers, and she's part of a company called Rope Partners. They go out and repair the blades in the towers of wind turbines and clean them. It's just a fascinating concept, and thank you for talking with us, Jacqueline.
7: Yes, hello, Nevada City.
6: Let's give them a just basic overview of what you do. You actually send people out to the turbines in these wind farms and put people up in them, and then you clean the blades and Um, repair them.
7: Yeah, they repair them. A lot of repairing because they get a lot of damage from lightning strikes and different things that happen, you know, with weather and sun and all of that when they're out there in the environment. So they are maintaining them for them to keep them running, and they climb on them with rope, and they work together as partners, and that is how the name grow Partner came about.
6: And these are made out of fiberglass, most of They're these? They're made
7: out of fiberglass, yeah.
6: Where is the company based?
7: Our headquarters are in Santa Cruz, California, and um, we have about 90 technicians, and we keep growing every year. It's a growing industry, like 30% every year, which is large for a lot of companies.
6: Do you work for a specific turbine companies that own certain turbines? Are there a bunch of different companies and you just go out and offer your services to all of them?
7: Yeah, there is a lot. A lot of large companies own the wind turbines, but there are some small wind farms owned by you know local people. We mainly work, of course, where the wind blows the hardest. Um, the middle of the country is a lot of wind farms. So that's where we go. And then we also work in South America and the Caribbean. All of the technicians are very environmental conscious group of people, which is really
6: nice. How much has the use of turbines to create energy through the wind increased over the years that your company's been in business?
7: A lot. Well, like 30% growth, and it's growing a lot more. There's a lot of different you know, projects out there for big wind farms, and uh, we have started working on the first ones in the ocean in Rhode Island, and that's exciting because there's going to be more of that, and The technicians were telling me that when they're out there working, there will be boats parked all around, just watching them work on the wind
6: turbines. How much energy do these turbines produce?
7: Well, here's a good way to comprehend it. A small one, example of a small wind turbine, it can supply like 1,200 to 1,300 homes. And a large one can supply 2,000 to 2,200, somewhere in that range. And, of course, there's variables, you know, how how much the wind is blowing and that type of thing. But um, it's definitely a, a great thing, the energy that they produce. And, of course, they're building them bigger and bigger. And there's one that they are building in Yorkshire, England, that will be 850 feet tall. And the blades will be 350 feet wide. So that's the size of a soccer field.
6: It sounds like it's very dangerous work to actually be up there in the wind, in the environment. You can't turn the wind off just so you want to clean them or repair them.
7: Yeah, they definitely are weather experts. Uh, We know exactly when the wind is going to blow and, and when it's going to get too strong, they have to climb back down and wait for it to not be so windy. So sometimes in the summer, they're working early mornings or, you know, late in the evening when it isn't so windy.
6: How do you repair a turbine blade? Do you have to take it off and bring it down to the ground or do you repair it up in the air?
7: Oh, they're up in the air. That's why they're climbing up there with ropes. So all of, of, you know, majority of the technicians are rope climbers and they love it.
6: And they also then know how to fix the fiberglass as well.
7: Yes, they also know that. Yep. Mm -hmm. So they bring everything up there and um, they've got the little strapped on type things and that's how they work. But the views up there are incredible.
6: (laughs) What do they use to clean the blades with?
7: Actually, simple green, you know, a lot of the time you would think it'd be like something more, but that works really well for cleaning.
6: What is the buildup mainly on the blades? What builds up and you have to clean off?
7: Well, I mean, so like they, like they talk about the ocean, the air is much cleaner in the ocean, of course, because on the ones that are on the wind farms, they get the dust because there's a lot of farmers around there. And then also, you know, the chemical sprays for crops and different things like that and just weather. Weather, weather if you can imagine anything that's out in the weather, you get buildup.
6: Let's go to birds. You have some interesting statistics that I heard about uh, the danger to birds.
7: Yes, all of the technicians have told me they rarely, rarely have seen dead birds by the blades. And I know long ago, I think because the design of the wind turbines, they had that maybe a little bit more. But it doesn't really happen these days. You know, they, of course, they've got scientists out there studying it. And they're actually putting on bath deterrents. So I think they'll be doing more and more of that with the wind turbines to prevent the birds from flying into them at all. And um, I guess if you look at it, they fly into skyscrapers and different things that are in the way as well. <laughs> but so it's an old myth it was started long ago. and It just kind of hangs around. People have that in in their mind, but it actually is not like it was, or it's really not anything that people have to be concerned about because it's just not happening.
6: I heard a statistic from one of your partners that said they'd been working on the turbines for eight years. And how many dead birds did they find in eight years?
7: Uh, I think she said four. <laughs> yeah. yeah, but very, 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 very little amount for sure. And, you know, with that many technicians out there working and not seeing it, and they're there for a long time on these jobs. You know, the, their tours last like five weeks, and then another crew comes in, and yeah.
6: Is there a lot of pushback from the uh, fossil fuel in- energy for these wind farms with turbines?
7: Well, there's actually, I think Exxon is starting their own wind farm, so maybe they'll switch over to, you know, looking at the world in a different way.
6: Let's talk about the desire to put these wind farms out in the ocean.
7: Well, I mean, I I think you know, there's more states, uh, Massachusetts, um, they're talking about one some in like Erie, so I you know, I think I think it's going to happen more. I mean, over in Europe, they are everywhere. They they have them every possible place and and the people are very accepting because they know it's going to help and they know you know it's something they have to go that direction
6: we thank you for sharing all your information we've been talking with Jacqueline Summers from Rope Partner and uh, we wish you all the success in keeping our environment better
7: thank you so much and thank you for having me on your radio show thank you and now Molly
5: Fisk. Molly Fisk, Observations from a Working Poet.
4: I'm thinking about the human impulse to name things and know the names of things. There's a mountain peak I see whenever I drive up over Donner Pass to Lake Tahoe, and every single time I say to myself, I wonder what that's called? I've been told its name, but just like the exact elevation of Donner Pass, which is over 7,000 feet and also a palindrome, giving me two of the four numbers, I can't seem to remember it. I used to name my cars. The red and white 69 VW bus that stalled out on the highway every time I drove to Vermont was called Alice. But subsequent rides devolved to the Dasher wagon and the planet Jetta. After I finally figured out that Volkswagens had to be repaired too often and Toyotas did not, I dropped the manufacturer's names too. One line of thought says naming things is a way to claim them. If you call it Castle Peak instead of Third Mountain on the left, you're more involved. And of course, if you name it after yourself or your favorite president, there's an assumption of possession. The land I live on, which is mostly owned by Bank of America, is unseated by the local native Nisanon tribe. I refer to it as the poem farm with mixed feelings, thinking I should learn the Nissanon name and also maybe give it back to them. Robert Hass, a poet I love, once wrote, Of all the laws that bind us to the past, the names of things are stubbornest. I can still remember how proud I was of learning to spell our street name when I was a kid, Divisadero. Between that and San Francisco, I felt glad to be from where I was from, so I knew how to spell those hard words early on. I thought it gave me an advantage in facing other life difficulties. Mind you, I was six. When I hear the street on the news, I can see it, a silver ribbon extending from the bay all the way to Market Street. It is mine, the way the whole city is mine, 53 years after we moved the way California remained mine when I lived in Boston, Norway, and Chicago. But it's not that I own these places, it's that I belong to them. They own me, if you will. My skin wakes up in a primal way at the smell of eucalyptus cloaked in fog, or the cable car's chime, even in a stupid TV ad. Every lighthouse is the Alcatraz light hitting my bedroom window. As I write this, I can feel language receding and my senses coming forward. The names are meaningful to me, but it's the sensory response to where I am that carries real power. Because we're animals in the end. We managed without words for a long time, and that memory lives in our cells. The names of things may be stubbornest, as Haas says, but what we experience is most essential. Salt, air, air the sun on our faces, and the cries of whatever those birds are, the ones we don't know the names of, right where we're standing.
5: Award-winning poet Molly Fisk writes, coaches, and teaches writing in California's Sierra Nevada foothills. You can reach her at mollyfisk.com. This program is produced at the studios of KVMR-FM, Nevada City, California. Funding is provided by Harmony Books of Downtown Nevada City and KVMR with support from the Corporation for Public Broadcasting. And that's our newscast
0: for this Thursday, June 9th. KVMR gets support from Harmony Books of Nevada City. Locally owned for over 25 years, next to the Chamber of Commerce at 130 Main Street. Open Monday through Saturday, 10 to 5.30, Sundays 11 to 4. Harmony Books carries thousands of books, including local authors. And the state of California and the California Earned Income Tax Credit. Informing Nevada County's Hispanic population that filing taxes can support the immigration process, provide access to public programs, and also yield possible tax credits and returns. More information, mycaleitc.org. Thanks very much for listening. My name is Claudio Mendonça. Meet me right here tomorrow at 6 o'clock for the Friday edition of the KVMR Evening News.